an alternative rock band makes a bold move that shocks the music world. An exceptional writer and pop icon breaks from the conventions of familiar forms. And a rapper turned singer gets incredibly creative with technology. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. So today we are talking about songs that changed pop. These are songs that are so revolutionary in one way or another that they had a hand in diverting the trajectory that popular music was on. And we could not have a more perfect guest for today's theme in Charlie Harding. Charlie is an incredible music journalist, multi-instrumentalist, and songwriter. He is also the executive producer and co-host of Switched on Pop, truly one of our favorite music podcasts. Also joining me today, of course, is my frequent co-host, Soundfly's VP of Learning and Curriculum, and a fantastic songwriter in her own right, Mahaya Lee. We get into all kinds of things on this episode, like what is the definition of pop music, how more and more popular artists are rejecting traditional song forms, and we do a deep dive on the origins of autotune. And just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to soundfly.com. Remember to use the discount code THEMES to take 20% off your annual or monthly subscription. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Songs That Changed Pop. Mahaya, frequent co-host here on Themes and Variation, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Carter, thanks. And we are joined by a very, very special guest, Mr. Charlie Harding. How are you doing, Charlie? I'm doing fabulously. Thanks for having me on. Guys, today we are talking about songs that changed pop. A very heavy theme today. I think a lot of different ways to go. I had a hard time with this theme, to be Mm. perfectly honest with you. My kickoff question today to get things started is, how do you both define pop music? All right. I did put out a book in December that forced me to define pop for the world. And so here's how I think about it. Pop is the intersection of three circles. So we have a you know three-point Venn diagram. And it's basically pop can be a genre. And what I mean by that is like it's it's the popular genre of the moment. Around 2010, it would have been like a Katy Perry, Carly Rae Jepsen, bubblegummy pop. Yep. 2015, it would have been much more EDM-oriented pop. Pop is an ever-changing genre on the one hand. Pop is also just what is popular on the billboard by you know overall metrics and then finally I, I think pop for me most of all is really just what's in the popular zeitgeist so pop could and should include things that are almost like folk music things like take me out to the ball game happy birthday the apple iphone ring things that are <laughs> music that are all in our collective consciousness i think pop is a genre that sometimes gets a bad rap yeah. from like some groups of people and i think to me i feel like it's more a desire to be counterculture and rebellious like something almost becomes a guilty pleasure type song simply be- because it's mainstream i don't know i think it's undervalued for that reason in a weird way no i think you make a really important point one of the contentious points about popular music is that it is in conversation with commerce right so it's like art mm-hmm. and yeah. commerce the point of popular music is to reach the largest audience, which is different than, uh, I don't know, more academic music, uh, more through composed music, art music, so on and whatnot, that there is a commercial intent built into pop music. I think that we are always navigating the discomfort of 
commerce and art. Yeah, they're always in tension with each other and they always have been. As we talk about popular songs and, and songs that you know definitely are striving to reach the widest audience, we're going to listen to a band that maybe didn't strive to do that. I don't know. First things first, we're going to dive into this tune. Mahay, you ready to have a listen? Yes. listening to Radiohead's song 15 Step from the album In Rainbows. Um, I recognize and acknowledge this was kind of a weird choice. (laughs) Depending on your personal definition of pop music, Radiohead is a little on the fence, like they're an alternative rock band, and that that feels less debatable. Um, Even if this song isn't a perfect example of pop music, I do think that it represents a turning point for songs that do fall more completely into the pop genre. Mm. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't pick a song so much as I picked an album and then decided to break down the first song from that right. album. <laughs> right. I have to say, when you started playing this, I got the chills because c- completely unprepared, I was listening to In Rainbows yesterday for the first time in many years. Oh, yeah. Because KCRW has been playing on repeat this amazing cover of uh, Weird Fishies by Leanne Lahavas. In the deepest ocean, the bottom of the sea. So it's got me back in this album. It's like, I mean, maybe to your point, it's like, it's maybe not quite pop, but it's something that is constantly sort of seeping into popular consciousness. It continues to have life. Absolutely. Radiohead is an interesting band in that way, too. They've managed to influence so many different genres and appeal to so many different types of listeners. Undoubtedly. Yeah. So the reason I picked this album, and subsequently this song, has to do a lot with the digital release. Right. Do you guys remember that happening? I well, I remember it being such a, a shock. When, th- when was this record released again? It was like early... I don't remember if it's late 2006, early 2007, or late 2007. It's even later than what I thought <laughs> it was going to be. But yeah, I just remember it being like, oh yeah, it, it was the first like free... It was the first pay-what-you-want album. Their um, contract with EMI had expired. Mm-hmm. They had been through the system. They knew what bothered them about it and seized the opportunity to release this themselves. They did have a physical release through a record label a couple months later, so there's a little mm-hmm. bit of a caveat to that. Nonetheless, it was one of the first times, possibly the first time, an independently released album went on to be this successful, which obviously wouldn't have been able to happen if they weren't Radiohead already at that point. Right. Was there any buzz or press before the record came out? Because there's some nope. influence on pop music today, too, which is like secret record dropped mm-hmm. Friday at midnight. Here's a new album. Let's get everybody talking about it. I do remember this coming out of absolutely nowhere. I can't remember if I paid something for it or I just downloaded it. I remember that being the biggest thing about this record. Right. We were talking about the songs, of course, like there are some yeah. incredible tracks on this record, but it totally broke the conventions of, of releasing music. People thought it was a hoax at first. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> they thought yeah, somebody yeah. hacked their website. Because, yeah. you know, everything they had released up to that point had been leaked just because of their timing with uh. the internet <laughs> as a band. Releasing something independently means that you are not as beholden to a record label which means that there aren't as many constraints on what you can do creatively. And I think that comes through on this album. 
Not that the ones before were less creative or anything, but like there's choices they made and didn't make that a label might have questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that this was released independently is the big selling point for me. Mm-hmm. I think it influenced pop music for a lot of the reasons, Carter, you've already brought up. Um, I do wonder like, if someone like Chance the Rapper could have gone about obtaining success in the way that he did were it not for the fact mm. that this had happened. I, I know you're going to dive into this, but like, I was hard-pressed to find another band that made odd time signature <laughs> tracks so palatable. Like this, this track in five, um, to me, when, when bands write songs in odd time, it feels like it was an exercise almost. Like, we're going to write a song in five, and then we go ahead and do that. But this song feels like it was written, and then they discovered, like, oh, it's in a weird time signature. Cool. <laughs> that track of theirs, All I Need, that bass line... think of it in 10 or a bar of four and a bar of six but like the way that they mm. weave through these weird time signatures but make it feel so comfortable that to me is just like definitely cool and you can't you, you hear that stuff seep through into popular music maybe there's a song with a three bar phrase it's still in four but like the phrasing's a little different so that stuff uh is definitely mm. definitely getting to pop totally to me the fact that it's in five yes is interesting but it's almost more interesting that this opens the album and it's in five yeah yeah that's a bold choice <laughs> But yeah, so the song is in 5-4, which, like Carter said, is in a regular time signature. Um, other famous songs that have used it, obviously Dave Brubeck's Take 5. <laughs> Sufjan's Come On, Feel the Illinois. Oh, great intentions. And Radiohead, I believe Morning Bell is also in 5. What is Pyramid Song in? I feel like that's a piece that I've just never figured out how to play because it is constantly just jumping around and making me feel like I'm lost at sea. I feel like there's got to be like a Fibonacci sequence (laughs) or something just based on the pyramid of it all. But um, I don't know. I haven't thought about that either. I'll have to check that out. I This is kind of nerdy, but that's why we're here. So like the top (laughs) of this track, you hear that clap? Yeah. In the beat, I'm gonna play it really quick. It it it's landing on quarter notes right at the bit, and then it has like a dotted quarter feel. Just listen to this clap really quick. Yeah, that to me was like the grounding kind of thing for me. And uh-huh. then obviously Tom York's vocal grounds it, but like that was like, oh, that's so sick and like making a groove kind of feel more comfortable. And then the way it like seamlessly transitions. I know I'm totally. like probably blowing up your spot here, but the way it seem- <laughs> seamlessly transitions to the actual drum kit it feels it feels like it almost has the impact of like a clave where you're playing on on the beat and then off the beat in a way that disguises the fact that the underlying time signature is so uncomfortable 100 percent. carter i also asked you to have a different song do you happen to have that up i do can you go ahead and hit play on that So Tom York claims that their big inspiration for 15-step in general, but specifically the way the groove works, comes from the Peaches song, Pain Away. Huh. 
mm. which isn't in five from what no, I can but tell. That, that distortion and like, like yeah. bit crushed groove is, yeah, you can hear that for mm-hmm. sure. But yeah. like he, he's talked in interviews about how, or maybe just interview singular, I'm not sure, about how that feeling of like a clap, clave type mm. situation is so integral and so interesting in the Peaches song. And that was something that really shaped 15 Step cool. as well. Right, because you have like, like if you're not listening with super close ears, you're either hearing like dot 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 or dot 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 dot. Exactly. Like that's they're both happening at the same right. time. So you have that same compound kind of feel that disguises, you know, exactly how you should feel the song. Lets you dance in multiple ways. It's very effective. And I think one of the ways that people make the Time Signature Five work like this is to really make it clear where your stresses are mm. falling. You can always find the end of the bar dropping into the next one, even if you feel a little Mm. lost. Give people something they can find, you know? It's almost like that downbeat is like your North Star. Yes, yeah, 100%. You have to give your audience something to hold on to. And so if you want to challenge them, challenge them with one thing, but not two or three things at the same time. Right. That is a mistake we see students make fairly often. Like they learn a few intermediate theory concepts and want to throw everything in. If you're trying to especially experiment with time signatures and you can't find phrasing that sounds natural with a lyric that's going to be too disjunct unless what you're going for is like i want to sound like Mm -hmm. crazy robot sound that is not human (laughs) that is what the effect will be i like songs that really just move back and forth between two or three chords especially if you're playing around with like tensions or leaving space like there's a sus chord in here things that let the melody go to interesting places um There is one chord that happens a little unexpectedly at a point in the song. It's the only time that we really get away from the repetition. Classic Radiohead. The root moving down, half a step. (laughs) to a minor chord and we all feel our feelings yeah that doesn't happen anywhere else in the song everything else stays comfortable and familiar and then we get that chord right there mm. and suddenly like you're saying it sounds like a bunch of other radiohead songs all of a sudden yeah, now we're in paranoid android all of a sudden yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly i like that that happens it makes that moment more potent if you are living this kind of dreamy world that's really built on a single yeah. groove Finding a way to bring everybody's attention back in is never a bad thing. And defying the expectations you've set, whether it's through like the chord progressions you keep repeating or the, you know, rhyme scheme or whatever. That's what that moment is to me. Do you, have you heard of the music theorist Philip Tagg? I don't know if I have. I've not heard of Philip Tagg, no. So he has this really fabulous way of thinking about chords and pop. We reference his work in our book as well. And, and and basically the thing is like most people when you study music theory, you're applying 18th century classical performance and harmonic thinking to contemporary pop. And hmm. in that old style of thinking, what matters most is the cadence, the movement from five to one. And I think that that mental framework is actually very unhelpful when we're thinking about chord structures and popular music. And so what Philip Tagg says is that oftentimes what's happening isn't this sort of like cadential relationship where there's a strong home chord and a, and a pull to an away, but rather he talks about chord loops and that a chord loop has a, a, a feeling of, of movement uh, where chords are sort of like 
they're outgoing, they're incoming, they're landing back, and they're just repeating. And it gives you more a sense – I think you used the word groove. And I think sometimes as as mm-hmm. composers, we can get stuck in thinking, oh, I need to use too many chords. Like I need more chords to be able to say something more meaningful. And here, because we have that complex meter, having a simple harmony really makes sense. It undergirds the entire thing with this groove. And then it's so satisfying when we eventually move away from it. I think the important thing for people to remember, too, is like the whole point of theory in anything is that it's an attempt to analyze and explain what came before. Right. Did you hear that little children's yeah. <laughs> Sure did. I had no yeah. idea what that was when I first... And I think I missed it the first time. Um, but that's creepy that, uh, it is that creepy, that's just like a isn't child. Like, um, especially like lyrically yeah. when you look at the song and I haven't done like a full like analysis of what the lyrics meant I, with Radiohead. For some reason, I rarely do that, which is so weird because I do that with everyone else's music. But this song might be a metaphor for death. Mm. That seems to be the prevailing thought on the internet. And it holds up when I dig in. Uh, 15 steps is more or less the height of a gallows. Um, oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah, it gets pretty dark. <laughs> The children's choir was supposedly originally brought in to record the claps, but they didn't do a good enough job, so they had oh, to record that Oh man, that's instead. such a bummer. I I can't. I've seen <laughs> clips of like children choirs coming in to sing, and it's supposed to be this beautiful thing, and it just isn't quite getting there. And you can yeah, see the producers kids. being like, like, yeah, exactly. Like it's so hard. Yeah, or even getting a group of adults to clap at the same time. Oh my god, yeah, difficult. yeah. All right, should, let's all do it over the video right now yeah. at the same time. One, <laughs> two, two, three. three. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that was all over the place. We're um, at the mercy of uh, the internet lag right I know, now, but uh, but yeah, not to <laughs> sell ourselves short, but. <laughs> One of the reasons why, for some people, Radiohead may be on the edge of accessibility is their constant playing with song form. The song that I picked today, I wanted to talk about because. Most of pop music for the last 50 years has fallen into a single song form, verse chorus form. And yet, I think we're on the precipice of a major change. And to evidence that change, I picked Taylor Swift's Cardigan. Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on, cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. Smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. But I knew you I'm a huge fan of Taylor and her writing and her career arc. I don't think that this song in particular is the song that will change all of popular music, but rather maybe is more representative of a change that is happening. Around the 1960s, there was this big shift in pop music that happened. Before that, all pop music basically was written in AABA song form. When people think of like the Great American Songbook and jazz tunes and listen to you know, Sinatra or whatever, those all start out with the A section. There's not really a chorus, but it's, it's the best part. And then you go to a B section, which functions as a bridge, some reprieve before coming back around to your A section. And these songs were pretty short. They worked really well, especially given the constraints of recording technology at the time. What happens 
in the 1960s is a real shift in song form. We, of course, get the dominance of the 32-bar blues form, which kind of shifts into this verse-chorus structure. They're getting longer recording times. They want new ways of telling stories. They're going through a cultural major change. At the same time, songs start being written in a different way. And that song form has been so successful, specifically talking about popular music. That has been true up until the last 10 years or so. So I did this analysis of the Billboard charts. If you look at the top 10 year-ending songs from the year 2000, or I guess I looked at 1999, 2009, and 2019, the number of songs that fall within that verse-chorus structure has been falling apart. In 1999, every single song, year-end top 10 songs, perfectly followed verse-chorus form. This is Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys era. When you get to 2009, verse-chorus is still pretty dominant. The Black Eyed Peas start playing with our expectations a little bit and bringing in electronic dance music structures. Over the last decade, I think the dominance of both hip-hop, which, you know, if you, if you look at mixtape culture, if you look at three different verses with three different guests on it, and mm. there's not that chorus. So you have, you have on one hand hip-hop playing around with structures and becoming the dominant form of popular music, while at the same time you have these EDM artists who are superimposing the drop into okay. pop songs. So we write about in our book the first example, We Found Love yeah. by Rihanna and Calvin yeah. Harris. Uh, is this song that we're like, the chorus isn't actually bigger than the pre-chorus. It's the exact same thing. And then there's a rise and a drop. And that's like the first big top 100 song that introduces what we call the pop yep. drop. And that has become a very commonplace way of building energy to an even bigger moment and actually downplaying the importance of vocals. Even Billie Eilish's Bad Guy doesn't really have a formal chorus. It's the instrumental part after what we might call the chorus that really functions as the repeated section. I'm the bad guy. Duh. If I had to home in on one idea, it would be the shift from the the importance of choruses to the importance of hooks, and that every section now must be a memorable hook. I think that Cardigan is a really fascinating example of this because in many ways it feels like a pop song has been around for a long time. It uses traditional instrumentation, right? It's on her album Folklore, mm -hmm. so it's intentionally sort of looking towards the past. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think if we look at how the song is written, it doesn't really have a verse-chorus-like structure. It has something totally different. It has just like hook, 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 hook. And we'll try to nail down. Like, if we look at the lyrics, the official lyrics that are verified on <laughs> yep, Genius, it says like verse one, chorus, refrain. Verse two, chorus, refrain. So it's like, okay, there's a chorus and a refrain. So maybe the refrain is a post-chorus. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start trying to apply all of my thinking about how a song is written. And then it's all going to fall apart. I want to listen to a couple of these different sections. And I want to quiz you all to figure out, okay, what section <laughs> oh, no. is it we're hearing? And don't think about them in terms of order. Okay. Think about them in terms of like function. Mm -hmm. How does it sound? Where's the energy at? Does this feel like we're building to a chorus? Does this feel like a pre-chorus? 
Vintage tea, brand new phone, high heels on, cobblestones. When you are young, they assume you know nothing. Sequin smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. I would say decidedly averse, yeah. Absolutely. Does it? Yeah, okay. It feels almost like if you open like a script and it describes like <laughs> still light on a man walking in the street kind of thing. To me, a, a first verse often does that. The lyric about like high heels on cobblestone. I don't know if that's an yep. exact sample of high heels on cobblestone, but... Uh, Sounds er- like it. Carter's hearing prosody. <laughs> I'm hearing lyrical prosody now, and that's awesome. So uh, I'm learning something. And Carter, are you feeling this is all, this is a verse to you? I feel like it's a verse, Yes. Okay, interesting. <laughs> well, play the next section. I knew you dancing in your Levi's drunk under a street light. I, I knew you hand under my sweatshirt, baby kiss it. Hey, well, what, you, what are you feeling here? What, what kind of a section are we when in? When I compare it to older Taylor Swift songs, I would say chorus at this point. But I know what's right, coming, okay. and I'm not willing to say that now. All right, play the next section. And when I felt like I was All right, so what's this? The problem, and it's not a problem with the song, it's a problem with my thinking, is I really, for whatever reason, am subconsciously trying to compare this to the Taylor Swift song, You Belong With Me. And I think it has to do with, like, the description of what a girl's wearing. And then something... Right, right. I think that's, like, I hate to say that's where it's coming from, but I think it's the fact that it talks about clothes so much in the beginning. Mm, Sure. And has a little bit of a similar melody in certain places. Maybe a pre-chorus, but why would you have two (laughs) pre-choruses? After, we have pre-chorus, chorus, pre-chorus yeah we're all over the place now we're all screwed up here here's how i'm hearing the beginning and i'm just gonna lay out a framework and then i'm gonna destroy my framework cool. <laughs> the, the first verse to me sounds almost like a pre-chorus which makes sense because i think the mm. second section is a chorus and i think the last section is kind of like a post-chorus verse one ends with this like when you are young they assume you know nothing that moment is this little tag that gets repeated throughout and it's kind of this question it's this question it has this upward feeling that needs an answer which feels like okay it's going to lead nicely into a chorus which it does the but i knew you section shifts into new harmonic territory it's actually the first time we hear the one chord and so from a energy and harmonic perspective the second section feels like a chorus to me especially because that last section which in the official lyrics is called a refrain Mm -hmm. the energy really drops back down what's weird though is that that refrain section, which for me is kind of like a post-core, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> it's actually the only section that has perfectly repeated lyrics yes. throughout right. the song. And this is where everything will just start to fall apart. The one thing the chorus needs to do is pretty closely follow the same lyrics so that the listener doesn't get confused. Like Taylor loves to do some creative stuff with like changing one line at the final chorus to change the meaning of the song. But even the second time we hear the chorus, the words are entirely different. Instead of, but I knew you dancing in your Levi's drunk under a streetlight, we get, but I knew you playing hide and seek and giving me your weekends. Yes. Now we have the repetition of the, but I knew you before getting into the section. We have the, when, when you are young, they assume you know nothing. And then finally we get back to this post-chorus refrain, which is the perfectly repeated section. Let's hear the second time that refrain happens.
Is it harmonically different? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Pay attention to the word cardigan. Play the second one one more time and you're going to hear the difference. Oh, man. I didn't even notice that the first time. I didn't notice that either. And I felt like I was an old cardigan under someone's bed. We get a whole new chord progression under this post-chorus section. Remember, the first time it plays, it's the same chord progression as the verse. The second time we hear it, it opens on a major chord rather than a minor chord. And then the cardigan is on a minor chord. And Mm. so the emotional weight shifts from maybe something hopeful to something more melancholy. My mind went to a very optimistic image of an old cardigan, you know, like the one you love to put on that makes you feel at home the first time. And the second time, I was like... I, I seriously thought the lyrics were different. And mm. then all of a sudden, Cardigan was being talked about in an abandoned way. But the lyrics are the same. <laughs> hey, Carter, have you heard about Soundfly's new subscription? Let's say I haven't. I think it's something you'd be super into. You know about Soundfly's courses, right? Of course I do. Not only are they highly engaging, they make it possible for us to do this show. Right. And you know about the premium courses, right? You mean like modern pop vocal production or orchestration for strings? Yep. Or faders up one, modern mix techniques, introduction to making music in Logic Pro, or advanced synths and patch design for producers. Or songwriting for producers? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, as a Soundfly subscriber, you'd get access to all of those and more. Plus, an invitation to our online community of students, mentors, and Soundfly team members, like you and me. A subscription's perfect if you want to explore at your own pace, but still like the idea of a helpful community of expert professionals and passionate hobbyists standing by, ready to help. Wow, when you put it like that, it sounds like an existential conundrum for me personally, and a pretty sweet deal for just about anyone else. It is a sweet deal for just about anyone, and it gets even sweeter. Anyone listening to this episode can use the code THEMES to get an exclusive discount at soundfly.com. Because at Soundfly, we want to help you reach your musical goals. All of this material is just being sort of reconfigured in ways where you, you're moving the chords, the lyrics, these lyrical tags, and you're hearing them in new contexts. And it's always changing just slightly. But overall, the mood of the song feels like a pretty consistent groove. And the way that she does that is by rejecting song form. She gives us that emotional journey, I think, in an album where you're going to have other songs that will give you those high points. But in three and a half minutes, I don't usually have wild (laughs) mood swings. (laughs) Speak for yourself. (laughs) Which is healthy. Yeah, that's definitely healthy. I mean, maybe in 10 minutes, maybe in seven (laughs) minutes. But like generally, I'm pretty consistent in my mood for three (laughs) minutes unless something really sudden changes. And I think that the Cardigan and so many other songs right now are showing that you can have a song that that is groove oriented that has a single feel Mm -hmm. and one of the ways that you can Mm -hmm. accomplish it is by totally playing with their expectation of how a song needs to be structured. Cardigan is a song that is actually part of a three song cycle about teenage love and the cardigan is a metaphor that appears again in another song and so like she's trying to achieve something with her lyric and I think she's probably figuring that out first and probably really not thinking a lot about verse, chorus, like what each Mm -hmm. section is. I think she's probably sitting down at a piano or playing on her guitar and like Mm -hmm. figuring out that that what that song is going 
going to be. And then I bet she and her producer sat down and thought about like, which sections do we want to move around to like really get the song just feeling just right? It doesn't matter if we change our chords. Just really having a healthy disregard for form. Mm -hmm. Again, doing it in a way that is unnoticeable, such that when you hear the repeated section, you don't notice that the chords have changed, but they have changed. And so you're having this subtle emotional experience that's happening while they change. I'm I'm about to make a Frasier reference. So everybody brace yourselves. Makes sense. Uh, But it reminds me of, there's a moment in Frasier where he describes his um, aesthetic of his apartment. And he says, my style is eclectic. And what that means, I learned this from Frasier. Otherwise, I would just be naming it as a thing. Is, you know, just like it's having kind of the confidence in every single piece on its own. And just it ends up working well together because of the quality of each individual component. One thought I had about listening to this track, and not to take us on too much of a tangent, but like... <laughs> we already went to Frasier. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah. Yeah, that and I don't true. regret it for a second, by the way. <laughs> I had a thought, like, I, I'm trying to think of another artist whose career has woven through so many different genres and so mm. many different styles, has seemingly been ahead of the game. Like when she's doing maybe her more pop-oriented stuff and there's maybe some EDM influences, it doesn't feel like she's the last to the party on that. And the fact that she's able to work with a Max Martin and sound incredible and sound like herself or work with, a, in this case, Aaron Desner, just the fact that she's able to sound yeah. like herself working with so many different producers and keep that uh, like identifiability, I guess, of her voice right. damn like i i need to give much more respect to <sighs> to taylor as an artist because god I think there's some important points here. First being, why does it consistently sound like Taylor? We, we've done a lot of analysis right. of her work on our show, and she has very particular melodic signatures that she repeats over mm-hmm. and over throughout her works. When you hear her melodies, you're like, oh, that's a Taylor thing. So she has this thing we call the Swiftian sigh, where she goes, na, na, na. And it's this melodic trope that she just like uses over and over and over. There's a couple of them in this record, but it's also on her first records. So that's kind of her mm-hmm. thing. She also has this way of using a leading tone in a major scale, the seventh degree of the scale, and resolving it to the one, but the harmony is actually resolving to a four chord. It gives you that subtle expectation. It's kind of a sort of yeah. deceptive cadence. She has a lot of country-like cadence where she'll sing one note and then jump up mm-hmm. to a much higher note back and forth, back and forth. Because she has things that she repeats, it almost has that quality of like it feels like someone just like sitting down with a guitar writing a song for the very first time. And of course she's bringing a lot more expertise and talent into it, but it has that quality of like, oh, I could do this. And I think so we can read ourselves into it. The other thing though here which I think is important to point out is you mentioned about there are, there are very few artists that have transformed their identity so much through their music, moved through so many genres. One thing I think that we observe in popular music is the expectations on female pop artists are really different than on mm-hmm. male pop artists. And so mm-hmm. I think the expectation is the constant evolution of identity and I think that Taylor Swift is one of the best at playing this yeah. game but is also required to play this game. I think when people are looking for especially if you look towards anything with like the rock genre and I don't mean to call anyone out but like you know a band I love like the Foo Fighters like my expectations for the Foo Fighters record is like I want them to play like a band with all of their instruments that I know like maybe you're going to try some new things that are going to excite me in, in interesting ways but like I want you to sound like the Foo Fighters and uh, that is and look like them too yeah, like, yeah exactly people right. get angry when like those bands cut their hair <laughs> totally yeah it reads as inauthentic if you change and so I, yeah. I often think that this is a bit of a trap that are biased and sexist culture has mm-hmm. on female pop singers that they both have to be authentic but also constantly have to change you know I think she threads that needle as elegantly as possible that was uh, I'm still I, I feel so discombobulated because oh, that was thanks. such an awesome breakdown of that track but I knew you 
When you think of autotune, who's the first artist that comes to your mind? Cher and then T-Pain. We are, of course, listening to T-Pain's I'm Sprung, his first hit single from 2005, and from the record Rappa Turnt Sanga. I am surprised <laughs> that I landed on this track. I love that you did. I have mixed feelings about it, but I, I'm encouraging. Go, go forth. <laughs> the reason, obviously, to me is that I took the angle of a production technique known as autotune or a production effect known right. as autotune that has been so influential on, on pop music, music in general. When I think of autotune, I think of T-Pain. And we will dive deep into autotune a, a little bit here, but I want to get into the song first. This is 05. This is my senior year of high school. <laughs> I remember it, again, growing up in Canada. It was on Much Music, I'm sure. Classic, like, R&B hip-hop video. So many scenes with him sitting on a roof, and I just remember that being a thing, you know? Like, that. Like I didn't realize, like, every Outcast video would have, like, Funny. they're all, like, everybody's on a roof for some reason. <laughs> have you ever sat on a roof? It's a nice, it's a nice moment. I have. It's a good time. What were your first experiences, maybe, with, with T-Pain and, and maybe this track specifically? I feel like I'm hearing the song for the first time. I think you picked a good song because it's one where this would actually still fit on pop radio. Its influence is so evident that I feel like I'm hearing it for the first time. I know I was one of the really obnoxious snobby kids that hated autotune when it came out because it sounded inauthentic. And mm-hmm. I've completely gone 180 on that. Exactly the same here. So yeah, this the track, I'm Sprung, it actually did get, I believe, its influence from, there's a 1997 movie called Sprung. We'll call it a romantic comedy. Huh. Stanley Clark, <laughs> actually, virtuoso bassist Stanley Clark mm. did the, the music for this, which was crazy oh. to me. I'm a sucker for a good acapella yeah. intro like this song has. Like, like the dude can <laughs> sing. The dude, he does it at the end of the song to the nth degree, but he doesn't hit you immediately with the autotune, which I think would be mm. an issue. One thing I found out, he's a he's a garage band slash Logic re- user. So anytime I see a producer, you know, you have Steve Lacey making hits for Kendrick with his phone. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. that's so that sick. Crazy. Like minimal tools. That's awesome. get our first dose of that T-Pain autotune with that do, 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 do. <laughs> the reason I love that is he went purely melodic, no lyrics. I think if he went right into the verse, it would be, it's jarring already. You know, if you go back to the first time you heard that, and you're like, wow, like this, this is a crazy sound. But the fact that you get a little bit accustomed to it, it has very talk box quality to it. It sounds like he has the mm. distortion dialed up, but it's so melodic and it gives your ear a chance to, to adjust. And then he's right into the track. The first lyric being, she got me 
me doing the dishes is bananas to me. It's absolutely yeah. bananas. You should know that this track is actually dedicated to T-Pain's oh, wife, sweet. Amber, which is really? really funny as we have a look at the lyrics here. So the, yeah. the first <laughs> verse, you know, it gives us T-Pain's perspective. He's fighting that feeling of being tied down. He says things like, she's cutting off all my homies. She ain't even uh, my main lady. Man, she really don't deserve me. All she want to do is hurt me. So I got to get away from her. Again, I have to point out this was dedicated oh, no. to his wife. Which is so, so insulted. Harmonically, there are actually, I think, some really interesting things happening on this track. Chord wise, very straightforward in the key of C minor. First chord is C minor, second chord is G minor, last chord is F minor. The bass, though, which is really, really hip, the first time it plays the root on each chord, and then the second time plays the root on the C, moves down a step to play the third on the G minor, and then down a step to play the third on the F. Form wise, yeah, there's two verses. I'm now because my my world's been rocked on form, <laughs> like just in the last three minutes. <laughs> You have the hook or the chorus as an intro and then verse. And then chorus again. The chorus is so long. And the thing that I actually really like about it is mm. it does use that opportunity to really die down. It goes back to that do, 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 do. And it just sets... Uh, the energy up for for another verse like mm. it, it just takes it's kind of a mm. palate cleanser i gotta play you guys this outro i love the last part of this track because he loses the autotune he's layering his voice and he's just singing it Yes, he uses auto-tune as a crutch for sure, as like as like his own identity, maybe not as a crutch, it's like his identifiable mm. sound, but he can still sing. When you pick the song, that was the one thing that I forget about T-Pain because he doesn't mm. let us hear it that often. Right. It's got a great voice. I like his voice. Sounds incredible. <laughs> and I think auto-tune for so many people is used as a crutch. With him, it, it does feel like a stylistic option that every now and then I'm like, come up with a pseudonym, like release music with no auto-tune, dude. Let's dive into auto-tune. Do you guys happen to know why? it was created in the first place. It was had no musical purpose. I did a really great interview with the fabulous journalist Simon Reynolds who wrote really I think the most definitive article on autotune for Pitchfork and what I learned from this was that it was actually developed by a geologist who had been using kinds of algorithms for looking at sonic movement in the Earth's crust to identify oil deposits and was also a musician and wanted to figure out how to use his unique brain and mathematics for or doing something in music and decided that pitch correction would have some kind of commonality between what he was doing with low surface oil wells. I do uh, just need to note Andy Hildebrand was was the engineer that actually created it. But you nailed it. Charlie, as you mentioned, yeah, off the top, Cher had, of course, the first commercial release using autotune with Believe. Do you believe? It was literally called The Share Effect. It was. <laughs> and I thought about doing that track. The reason I chose T-Pain, I think, like, well, let, let's get into that later. Like, he he was influenced by Jennifer Lopez, used it on her track, If You Had My Love, but it was the Dark Child remix, and it's only for a split second. And in plenty of interviews, Mr. Tallahassee Payne said that that was the track that did it for him. First of all, I won't take you cheating on me. Who can I trust if 
Share in 98, JLo in 99, and then this track comes out six years later in 2005. So auto-tune is being used, right. obviously, mm-hmm. until that point, but it's used to, to fine-tune vocals, which right. every singer does. And, and I was one of those kids, again, that was like, don't use auto-tune. That's, it's so, that's so dumb. But like, no, rock, rock bands auto, auto-tune. Everyone yes, auto-tunes. Yeah. Everyone auto-tunes. Mm-hmm. I think what happens, though, as like the moment for it, it jumping genres is this record. In 2005, mm-hmm. I'm Sprung comes out. He uses it on like every track, I believe, at least at least sparingly on every track on Rapid Turn Singer. He then features on a ton of tracks with artists like DJ Khaled. You got even Jamie Foxx. Hey, girl, I know you feel and he's using this sound on everything. So that kind of blew the doors open. Snoop goes on to use it. Uh, Little Wayne goes on to use it on the Carter. And then we have 808s and Heartbreaks. In the night I hear him talk the cold story ever told. Somewhere far along this road he lost his soul to a woman so heartless. Kanye using a very polished version, which T-Pain says he hates the way he uses auto-tune, actually. Like, so T-Pain records with it on right. while he's singing, and Kanye will do it in post-production. I didn't know this about this record, but T-Pain was brought in by Kanye to coach him how to use oh, auto-tune. Awesome. He had used it on background vocals earlier, but never on a lead vocal. And then you hear like so many tracks on, on 808s that are just like super dialed and lush. The discussion of auto-tune being used as you're recording versus in post, I almost feel like that's like treating it like an instrument versus treating it like an effect. And as an instrument, that does become a little more interesting to me in some ways. Totally. Well, because you're playing the settings of the plugin and trying to figure out how to create the digital artifacting mm-hmm. that is the sound in real time rather than because if it's after the fact, then it's all these happenstance things that, that are just occurring. You know, someone like Kanye, who is not a traditionally good singer, he's not going to control it in the same way using it in post. You can then use Melodyne and other things to then get to the artifacting that you want and automation and all sorts of that. But like pain plays it like an instrument post 808 and heartbreaks very shortly after in 09 jay-z releases doa stands for death of auto-tune so he kind of puts everybody on blast as using he specifically calls out t-pain but he has said that it wasn't about t-pain using it it was like you know we've got t-pain right. and kanye and some artists like akon already using this leave right. it to them to use the effect he felt like he was turning on the radio and literally everybody was using it which is yeah that's a problem this is anti-auto-tune, for the ringtone. This ain't for iTunes, this ain't for sing-alongs. This is Sinatra at the opera, bring a This says a lot about the, the, the timing of this as well, though, right? Because as a musician working in pop, it is essential that you figure out a recognizable sound. So for some singers like Sia, you hear her voice for one second, you hear the rasp in her and the quality of her voice. Party girls, don't get hurt, can't feel anything. When will I learn, I push it down. And you're like, that's Sia. But also for instrumentalists, the most repeated sound in music is people trying to copy Hendrix's guitar tone. And it's like, don't try to do that (laughs) unless you want to be in a Hendrix cover band because you're not developing your own voice. But the reason why I say it's timely is like T-Pain figured out a way to use auto-tune in his own way that it became a sonic signature, but it was also during the rise of the internet and the ease and accessibility of music production in such a way that it was very easy to copy. If you wanted to copy Hendrix back in that era, you had to buy a lot of gear. You probably didn't know what gear it was because you had to like be at the concert, stare at his 
pedal board, you know, know the person who modded the pedal that did the blah, blah, you know, so on and whatnot. <laughs> and so as music production becomes so much more accessible, yeah. sort of an important learning point for producers to think about like, well, am I making things in ways that have their own sonic signature that aren't immediately repeatable by somebody else? And, and maybe that's inevitable. And that's just the era that we live in. My last thoughts just on like where we are with Autotune now, like obviously it's dove head first into mumble rap and, and rap in general, like artists like Future. I like Future a lot, and I don't think he uses it even as much as, as T-Pain does, obviously, but like just to have straight verses that aren't really sung, like the actual melodic line mm. is pretty pretty mm. straight. And to have autotune, you get those little glitches, that's cool. But then you also have the other side of it, like a Bonnie Vare. Uh, Charlie, because we have you on the pod, I'm dying to ask you, has doing a podcast that dives so deep into into pop music and beyond changed the way that you listen to music? Oh, I mean, overwhelmingly so. Working as a music journalist has required me to totally change my ear and change how I think about music to Mm -hmm. completely shift Mm -hmm. away from certainly my own taste, uh, which I do think is just unimportant to really caring a lot about what a song is trying to do, whether it's achieving what it's trying to do, whether I have the knowledge to understand what it's trying to do. Things are always moving so fast, I have to constantly self-educate. And then uh, trying to understand what other people are are getting from those experiences. And I think really trying to listen with other people's ears is such a satisfying experience. I've said before that I think it's important that we cheer on all other genres apart from the ones that we love the most. So often people will summon it as an idea of this universal language that speaks to everybody that like is like embedded in our soul and, you know, it's tied to the the genius myths and all this kind of stuff. And like music is a social construction. Major and minor keys have no fundamental universal experience. They have contingent experiences based off of decades, years, centuries of, of reinforcing what those mean within a certain culture. So I, I'm really curious at exploring those questions and cheering on the various cultures and ways of making that exist. I I feel very grateful for getting to do what I get to do, and it's a rare thing to be able to do, and so I feel a strong sense of responsibility to to listen really broadly with uh, with open and curious ears. That's beautiful, man. And speaking of what you do, I mean, you're a very busy guy. Again, thank you so much for making the time to appear on oh, Themes today. Was this so was fun. awesome. I love what you all do. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, but you have so much going on. You have one of our favorite podcasts. You have a book based on one of our favorite podcasts. I know you're a songwriter as well. Please share with our listeners everything that you're up to. Well, there's always a lot that I'm excited about in music. Things that we're putting out, I have to be honest, I'm enormously proud to have published a book with Oxford University Press, Switched on Pop, How Popular Music Works and Why It Matters, that sort of goes into more depth about all these same ideas. There's a chapter on song form, there's a chapter on Taylor Swift and these ideas on authenticity and her melodic identities that she repeats throughout her music. That that came out within the last year and I still, yeah, I'm very proud of that. And then in the show, um, we're about to launch a series on anthems, songs that usually bring us together in stadiums, in arenas. We're talking things by Queen, Missy Elliott, talking about Jock Jam, we're talking about <laughs> All Star by, Sma- uh, by Smash Mouth. Nice. 
So we're going to explore anthems because I feel like we want that music. It's the music that brings us together in a time when we're all required to be really quite apart. And so we're going to do a really fun celebration of uh, of all of those. We've got some really fun things happening at the end of the year. But it's week by week. I put all of my personal curiosity and things I'm excited about into the show that I'm making every single week. And, and so uh, if you ask me that question, once that series is done, I'll be like, oh, my gosh, I'm working on a piece about the worst synthesizer <laughs> solo of all time. Actually, that's yes. that, that one that will be coming up later <laughs> in the year. And that's going to do it for another episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know the songs that you think changed pop. So there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. Be sure to check out soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs and definitely check out Switched on Pop. Charlie's podcast that he hosts with musicologist Nate Sloan. You will be very glad that you did. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.